If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of Micah. Micah is one of the Old Testament minor prophets. If you don't know where to find him, you can open your Bible up nearly in the middle and move just a little bit to your right. You'll see the so-called major prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. And then you will eventually come to Micah. We are looking this morning at Micah chapter 2. Having last week spent some time in the first chapter of Micah, looking at his first warning to the people of God. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Micah chapter 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am, against this family, I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you, and moan bitterly, and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly. But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord our God, we ask this morning that you would direct us to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
that you would give us hope, hope even in the midst of our own sin, a hope that comes from your grace and redemption. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Last week in the first chapter of Micah, two things stood out for us. First, the surprise that the Lord would bring judgment not just on the world outside, but on his people for their sins. And second, that the foundational sin was distorting the worship of God. Today we see that the failure to worship God and honor him leads to the next step, to despise and to hurt people. So once again, Micah takes up his warning, his rebuke. But it is not without hope. The same God who breaks out in judgment breaks in with grace. We see three things this morning in Micah chapter 2. First, we see Micah's rebuke to the greedy. Second, we see his rebuke to false preachers. And then third, we see a rupture of grace, a break-in of grace. So let's begin then by looking at Micah's rebuke to the greedy in verses 1 through 5. Micah here is moving from the general to the specific. He had spoken before about the transgression and the sins of Israel and Judah which at its core was a rejection of God and his authority. But sin always expands and expresses itself in different ways. It does not stop with what we think. It always moves into how we act. And so now Micah calls out the sin that is oppressing God's people. It is a sin of wickedness. Look at verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. Now, what is this sin that Micah is pointing out? Micah tells us a good deal about it. In verse 2, he spells it out. He says, they covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. What Micah says is that the greedy rich were grabbing land and property to build up their own wealth. They were seizing land and houses from others, likely by violence. Because the word here that is used for seize has the idea to take by force. Now, it may not have been physical force. It may have been so-called legal force. It's very likely that what was happening here was that these greedy people were making what we would call today loan shark loans to property owners and homeowners. You know, the kind of loans that you know when you make them, somebody is not going to be able to pay back at interest rates that you know are not sustainable, with all kinds of fine print in the contract so that at the slightest misstep, you can foreclose and take the property. It was all legal, but it was not just. So why was this sin so bad? Why does Micah choose to single this out? It was 
so bad because it was harmful not just to people, but also to the very fabric of the society of the people of God. Because land in Micah's day was more than just a source of wealth. It was the inheritance of a family. That's what Micah says in verse 2. Now, you may recall that when Israel came into the promised land, all of the land was God's, not theirs. God had given it to them. God had purchased it by his great and mighty acts. It was not by the might of Israel that they came upon this land. It was through God's miraculous and mighty works. And so what happened was the land was given by Lot to the families as an inheritance to secure their place in the community. It was not just to be a place they could live on. It was to be a place for their family to have standing in the community, to know they had a source of income, that they were a part of the people of God. Without their land, they would lose their independence. They would actually lose their identity as a part of the people of God. You may recall that this is a part of the beginning of the story of the book of Ruth. That Naomi had left the land, she had left and gone to Moab, and when she returned with Ruth, they had no place in the community. They were rudderless. They were dependent on the kindness of others. And so this is also why you may recall when King Ahab, the wicked king of Israel, tried at first to purchase the property of Neboeth, he said no. It wasn't because he was trying to drive a hard bargain. He told the king, this land is my inheritance. It is my family's. It is our part and parcel of the community. But more than that, this sin, more than being an attack on people and an attack on the community, it was premeditated. It was no accident. They knew exactly what they were doing and they knew exactly what the consequences of their actions would be. Micah describes it as them devising wickedness. That is, scheming to come up with a plan to hurt others. They were laying on their beds at night, scheming how they could get richer. And they didn't care at all who they hurt. And then, they got up and they did it. Why? Well, we would answer because they could. That's what Micah says. It was in the power of their hand. They knew they were able to do it, and so they just did it. They gave no thought to how it would hurt others. Sin is most offensive when it comes from a disregard of God and His Word. And the only consideration we give to sin is whether or not we can get away with it. Have you thought about what restrains you from sin? Is it God's word? Or is it whether you think you might get caught and have consequences? Micah shows that if we are not restrained by God, we will not be restrained or stopped by people. Now, what was motivating all of this? It's so simple and yet so deadly. Micah tells us in verse 2 that they covet. Now, to covet 
is to be a slave to your possessions and greed. You always want more. You can never have enough. Coveting is a dangerous sin. It is a sin that we can excuse because it's available to all of us and we can hide our coveting from others. No one sees us wear on our sleeves or on our face a desire to have more, to have what someone else has. But yet it comes to all of us. Kids, you may not know what the word covet means exactly, but I guarantee you that you covet. Because what it means is when you have to have that toy, when you've got to have that pair of sneakers, when you've got to have this video game, when you've got to have this or that that someone else has, you are coveting. So even the youngest among us are not immune from this sin. And yet adults do the same thing. We just covet bigger things, bigger toys, cars, homes, vacations, etc. Society even encourages coveting. You might even say that if there was a poll, what is society's favorite sin? They would pick coveting. Society might not be in favor of murder all the time or lying all the time, but they're always in favor of coveting. It's called advertising. They convince you that you don't have enough. They convince you that even if you have something, you need the new and improved something of the something. But God calls us to contentment. He calls us to be satisfied with what He has given, to trust Him. Do you trust the Lord today? Are you content in God? Now, God sees all of this. The coveters are devising wickedness, but God is devising justice. Now, stop and think about this. It's remarkable, because when we sin... We act, whether consciously or unconsciously, as if God doesn't know what's going on. As if somehow he doesn't see us in our sinning. But Micah tells us that God sees into their bedrooms. He hears their very thoughts. He knows their plans. Look at verse 3. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the Lord's plan comes about because of what he knows in verses 1 and 2. And God acts. The language here is very interesting. God turns the tables on them. He does the same to them that they had been planning. He is devising disaster for them. God is scheming against them. It would not surprise you to know that the word for wickedness and the word for disaster have at their root the same word. They are cognates. While the wicked people are scheming evil against others, God is scheming disaster and judgment against them. Just as they were painstaking and thorough in planning their schemes, so God is deliberate in working out His justice. And His justice, Micah tells us, is sure. You can't get out of it. He says it's a disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. The picture we're to have in our mind is of a farm animal who is in a yoke in a field. And as much as they might try to get out of the situation, as much as they might twist their head or snort or stamp their feet, they can't get out of the yoke. They're trapped. It's inevitable. 
this justice is also humiliating. Because if there's anything that the greedy like almost as much as wealth, it's respect, isn't it? As a matter of fact, often that's the reason that they pile up wealth, so that they might be able to use it to make themselves look better than others. But God will make sure that this does not happen. They're not going to be able to walk around any more arrogantly or haughtily, Micah says in verse 3. Actually, what will happen is in that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you. People will act sarcastically towards you. And you won't like it at all. Now, picture that. If you were an upstanding, supposedly, member of Israelite society, and you had great wealth, and what you expected was to get a call from Jerusalem Better Homes and Gardens to come and see your villa and everything that is in it, and instead, bands of people follow along behind you singing a taunt song. Now, you may have to go back to the grammar school days. Did you ever have the indication where kids would come around you and maybe sing a funny song about your name or what you looked like? And it's, it's infuriating. It's worse than someone saying something bad when they're making a song of it. And that's what's going on here. God is saying, I'm going to humiliate you for your actions. It's also God, that God's justice is appropriate. It fits the crime. Notice the last thing that will happen. We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me. To an apostate, he will allot our fields. What happens? They have their property taken from them. And it's not given to other Israelites. It's given to apostates. To people outside of the people of God. To the Assyrians. To the Babylonians. Can you imagine their shock? Why is God taking my property from me? Why is he giving it to people who don't deserve it? And all the while, they don't realize that they've been doing this all along. This prophecy will become true when the Assyrians and Babylonians invade. Well, how could these greedy, rich people think that they could get away with these schemes? How could they imagine this would happen? Wasn't God's word available to them? Wasn't God's word clear about this? How could they try to get away with this when men like Micah would forthrightly preach God's word? Surely, if they knew that disaster God was planning against them, they would repent. And they would turn away from their sin. So many of us look at these covetous evildoers as being completely secular, who are unconnected to God at all, who have no connection to the church, who have never looked at God's word. But we saw last week that Micah is taking aim at sin in the church, not outside to the world. The church is whom he's calling to repent. And so the greedy rich got away with this in their own minds because they had their own captive preachers. These preachers whose job it was, was to assure them that nothing bad would happen, that they were perfectly fine, that everyone loved them, that they were following God. Now this is important for us to see. Because it's not that these people were intolerant of all preaching. They were just against the kind that called them to accountability. 
they refused to listen to preaching that made them uncomfortable, that challenged them. And so this should make us think twice about how we listen to God's Word. Are we upset? And do we close our ears when it bothers us? Or are we thankful that God sends His Word to us to keep us from sin? You see, these preachers, Micah says in verse 6, they rebuke him. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake them. What are they saying? They're saying, Micah, stop preaching about judgment. That's what these such things are. Don't preach about sin. Don't preach at me. Give it a break, Micah. And even the word that's used here is sarcastic. It's not the normal term that is used for preaching or prophesying. It has as its root the word or the idea of drip or dripping. We might say, Micah, stop going on and on and on about this. Could you give it a break? We don't need to hear this now. It's not as if they're saying, we don't want to hear God at all. They only want to hear certain things from God. So you should not preach about depressing or discouraging message of sin and of judgment, Micah. Now, what should you preach? Well, you should preach grace and the love of God. And so what these false preachers do is they take the truth of God and they twist it. They take the truth of God's patience and long-suffering and they say that Micah is failing because he's not preaching that. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? It's as if they're saying, Micah, isn't God a God of love? Isn't he patient with his people? Won't his goodness and mercy follow us all of our days? They might even use the Bible to attack Micah. They would say, Micah, doesn't your Bible have Exodus 34 in it? Where it says in verse 6, The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Why don't you preach an upbeat message, Micah? Now the problem is not that the Bible contains a message of mercy and grace. It does. The problem is not that we should preach that. We should. The problem is when we twist the Bible to make it say what we want it to say. And so Micah might have responded to them, why don't you finish the sentence in Exodus 34? Because the next bit of the sentence is, God, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You see, don't we see this kind of false preaching all the time in our day? People who say, why do you talk all the time about sin? You won't win people over with fear and with judgment. Isn't God always a forgiving God? Or perhaps the classic, I can't believe in a God who would be like that. The God that I believe in is a God of love and patience. And the problem with this is that it excuses our sin. It also fails to show the whole character of God. God is merciful because he is just. We need mercy because sin is so harmful and wicked. Don't fall for the lies of soft preaching. 
Now, Micah will have none of this. He won't let himself be silenced by bad theology or by calls to blunt his message. No, he takes it right up again in verse 8. Such things have to be said. They are true. They are important. The false preachers are not producing lovers of mercy and grace. They are making enemies of God. Do you see that in verse 8? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. Now this is the exact opposite that the soft preachers were saying. This is not what the greedy wanted to hear. They wanted to hear that they were on God's side. That they were his favorites. That he was patient and gracious with them. And yet here Micah tells them that they are rising up as enemies to God. Micah points out that their actions are as bad or worse than those whom the greedy would have considered enemies of God. They were acting like enemies of war. What do they do? They strip the rich robe from those who pass by with no thought of war. They are robbing the clothes off people's backs as if they were at war when they are not. No one was expecting to be robbed in such a way. And yet in verse 9, Micah gives us a hard, clear assessment of what was going on. Women and children being thrust out of their homes, driven out to please the greed of those who wanted their property. Then Micah gives us a picture of what it would take to be a popular preacher in his day. Who would be a preacher of the people in verse 11? Why, of course, it would be a windbag, a liar. Now here Micah is using sarcasm. You need to know that the Hebrew word for spirit is the same Hebrew word as the word for wind. It's context as to which way it's used. And so you would think that a preacher would want to have the spirit of God, would be preaching in accordance with the breath or wind of God. But what Micah does is he takes this word for spirit or wind and he combines it with the verb to deceive or to lie. And so it's not by the spirit that they're speaking. They're lying with empty air. Again, we would call them windbags. They're trying to deceive. He's saying if you preach such lies, you're nothing better than a windbag. No one should have to listen to you. You have no value in what you say. Now, what is the topic that a windbag would dwell on? Well, what they dwell on is how good things are and how much you are owed blessing from God. It's just like the prosperity gospel that we hear today, that God owes you health, wealth, and blessing. And if you don't have it, somehow it's your fault because you don't have enough faith because God owes it to you to keep you in perfect health and give you all kinds of money and blessing. That's what Micah means in verse 11 when he says, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. We might say it colloquially today that it is beer and wine preaching. Let the good times roll, baby. Everything is good. You shouldn't have to worry about anything. That's the kind of preaching that is prevalent in Micah's day. Now, we should never think that God has to tell us what we want to hear. 
We're not owed a message that has nothing negative, no guilt, no judgment. If that's what we want, then we're really denying the reality of Jesus. Because Jesus came because we are guilty and under judgment. He bore the wrath of God so that we could have mercy and grace. Do not minimize the work of Jesus for some comfort today. Now, if we are listening to Micah, we can be a bit discouraged. We know that we are not owed only blessing and good things. And yet, the way Micah rebukes sin, this message is dark. And it can be hard to hear. We hear about judgment on sin. And while we agree that God is holy and just, it's hard to take. We want to be free from judgment and sin. At the same time, we may hear this story and sympathize with those who are being abused, with those who are being robbed. And we wonder, are those who are being defrauded, are they going to be punished along with the evildoers? After all, aren't they the victims in this? And so this points us to another problem. God's word is not all hardness, justice, and wrath. If it is, we can be beat down under it. We can be without hope. Life is hard. And many of you have suffered, and many of you are suffering now in life. You don't need me to tell you that everything is fine, and somehow you're off-center if you're having difficulties in your life. But yet, is it the place of the preacher to just continue to push you down when you're hurting? Micah says, no. After his two oracles of woe, of judgment, he breaks into a message of grace in verse 12. Grace breaks into the picture, reminding us that God knows our sin. Because he, and because he knows we are guilty, he has made provision in his grace. Look at verse 12. God is now speaking. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. Here is a picture of the people of God who are scattered. This would be the result of God judging his people and taking them out of the land. Now you remember, Micah talked about this in verse 5, about the scattering of God's people. He touches on it also in verse 10, where he tells the evildoers, Arise and go, for this is no place to rest. And so, the people of God are scattered. We see this picture because now God is reversing it. He is gathering the people of God together. And so now Micah is quoting God again, as we've seen, the I speaking is God. And what will God do? He will gather his people once again. He will gather them by his grace. There is no mention at all of them deserving it. And he will gather them for their safety, like sheep in a fold, in a pasture. The whole idea is one of safety and blessing. And this grace is certain. You may remember that I told you last week that when Hebrew wants to emphasize something, to say very important, it repeats it. That is important, important. And we say it's very important. It's the way the language works. That's exactly what Micah is doing here. He says, 
I will gather, gather. And I will assemble, assemble. It's God saying with every degree of certainty that we can hear that he will gather his people together. All of the emphasis is on God's work. He's not waiting for them. He's not waiting for us. He is the one who is at work. He will surely gather the remnant together. No matter how bad the situation seems, God always has his people. You can be sure of it because it's of his grace. Now, the last thing we see is in verse 13. God not only gathers his people by grace, he frees them. He liberates them. This is a fascinating picture of one who opens the breach in verse 13. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate. It's someone who breaks down barriers. It's someone who smashes. This is the ancient Hebrew equivalent of God smash. God break through. And when you hear that, something arises in your mind. When you hear about someone smashing, you don't picture a 98-pound weakling. You don't picture a weak person who can't open a door. You picture someone who is unstoppable that nothing can stand in front of, that if we need a path, he blazes the path for us. God is the one who opens the gate so the people of God can pass out, so that they can be free from the confinement that they are in. Who is this one? Who is the great liberator of the people of God? The one who frees them is the one who stays with them. He leads them. The king passes on before them. He is at their head. Now, who is it? Well, it's no one but the Lord. Specifically, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has smashed the chains of sin that bind us. He is the one who has broken down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. He is the one who has freed his people from, the, from their sin by his death on the cross. And what Micah tells us is that he has done all of this by his grace. We don't deserve it. And he will not leave us or abandon us. He is your Savior, not just for the beginning, but for the whole journey. Micah brings us a message that if 